Okay, uh, so the first question from the MBT forum users is a very short one. It's from John, and it says, I'd like to ask Tom if fears can be passed down in our DNA from generation to generation. Uh, simple answer to that is yes. You know, we think that that it takes you know hundreds of years before we can modify things that are in the genetic code. That evolution is a very slow mover over over millennia, and it it is in many ways. But in the smaller picture, it isn't a collective way. You know, we the human race don't change very quickly, but we as individuals. Uh, it's surprising how easy it is actually to modify our own DNA and act and pass that on, you know, to uh, our children. Yes. Uh, uh, situations, things that we learn, fears that we maybe develop or have uh, phobias that come, um, whatever uh, understandings that we get attitudes. There's a lots of things that we, that we think are strictly psychological, you know, the blank slate theory, you know, you're born with a, as a blank slate. And after that, your environment, you know, writes on that blank slate and you are a product of your environment. It's not like that. That slate isn't blank. You come in with a lot of data already on that slate when you're born and you can modify your DNA and what you pass on to your children just in your own lifetime. Now it won't be trivial things, but, uh, Major things will make a difference. Now, it doesn't mean that all of your offspring will have that thing. It just means that the probability that they can get that attitude, ideas, proclivities, or whatever, is greater. The prob probability goes up. You say that because the what what your children end up with isn't uh, you know isn't guaranteed to be any particular way. There's an awful lot of randomness in the process. And I call it randomness, not true randomness. It's just it's such a complex process that nobody really can follow the, the thread of, of uh, causality uh, that, that carefully. So it, looks, it appears to us to be a lot of randomness in that process of what you, of what you might get out, of how things just happen to go together. But the, answer, the short answer is just yes, you can pass, uh, change your DNA and pass that on. Again, it's it's a I guess a product of the concept that the the mind leads and the body follows. Your your consciousness can modify, you know, physical things with with its intent. So if you have strong intents and strong ideas and strong feelings about things, that will modify things in your body to support that. And those things then become uh, encoded in your in your DNA. So you know we know that in a lot of ways we know that people who are have high anxiety they're always upset they're always arguing they're always fussing you know they're always angry uh, they always are fighting uh, with somebody. We know these people generally get ill. They they don't live real long. Those aren't the long livers. The long livers are the people who are who are laid back, relaxed, you know, uh, enjoy their life. They tend to live longer than those that are uptight and angry and upset. Why? Because all of that, that anxiety tends to modify their physical systems in a, into pathology because that is pathology of consciousness turns out to be pathology in the physical body. It's the, the uh, mind leads, the body follows. The, what the body is there for is just to set constraints. So the body is the avatar. The avatar sets constraints on what the consciousness can do. The elf can only jump so high, run so fast, say, you know, stay so long underwater, or, you know, you have dire consequences. The, the, you know, it's the, it's the physical world sets the constraints. The elf can't walk through the tree because that's a constraint in the rule set of that world. So it's the same with our bodies. Our physical bodies provide a set of constraints within the rule set of what the consciousness can do with that avatar. And as that consciousness grows or changes or becomes something else, then that physical body, that avatar, has to modify within the rule set in order to support what it is that that consciousness is doing. So the mind leads, the body follows, and that includes the genetic structure 
as well. Now, that's a concept that isn't very widely understood either. You know, that's about in the same place with uh, virtual reality, I suppose, to most to most scientists doing work in genetics or so on. But uh, it's a it's an idea that's catching uh, hold there. Bruce Lipton has a lot to say about that sort of thing. If you would go to listen to him, he's a biologist that can talk more biology terms than, than I can. And uh, he would agree with that, that uh, it's the the body follows the lead of the consciousness because the body kind of represents in a way uh, what the consciousness is. The body kind of changes itself to meet the consciousness. People who are who are constantly negative, you'll see that they do not have they do not have good health, but it also changes their physical appearance. They appear differently. Their faces change. Their uh, um, you know the way they move, the way they walk, their posture. You know all the things that are these physical traits all change to reflect the consciousness that's inside. So people who are feeling really, uh, you know, miserable and down and, you know, life sucks and all that, you know, they're not going to have the same kind of posture as somebody who's very positive and thinks, uh, you know, life's a lot of fun and I can't wait for the next exciting day to happen sort of thing. And just the posture between those two, those two thought sets is different. You see, the body expresses what's, what's in the mind to a large degree, and will modify itself to support what's in the mind. So it's a, it's a very uh, close connection to the consciousness and the quality of the consciousness and the, um, the physical process. That's how, that's how the avatar, that's part of how the avatars evolve to better processes, is that first the consciousness has to evolve to allow better processes. As the consciousness gains quality, then the ability of the avatars to support that quality changes as well. And that's another part of the evolutionary process that's not random. You see, we, the evolutionary biologists would start with the premise that all your, your um, changes start out as random processes, right? It's, uh, it just happens. It just happens, and because it happens and it's, and it's more survivable than it persists, and, and it happens and it's less preservable, uh, survivable, it goes away. Okay, those are called mutations. Just mutations are random things, and then the the environment either you know pushes them forward or 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 uh, gets rid of them. Well, if you take that theory that all evolutionary change starts out from random process, you should have a different picture evolved than what we see here. So the the evolutionary biologists have a have a hard time explaining this. It's sort of like the physicists that can't explain the double slit experiment. The, uh, the evolutionary biologists can't explain why we don't have a lot more variety than we have. We should if we have all these, these ideas. And the only ones that go away are the ones that are so bad that they're not survivable. There should be a much larger group that is more or less survivable, but it's survivable enough to get by in the environment and so on than we see. They also see things where evolution takes place, in particular one I read about was a moth, where the moth changes color to suit its environment in less than a decade. Yet the color scheme that it needed was very drastically different than what it started with. And just by random, you know, random choice saying, well, let's try pink, let's try orange, let's try black, let's try stripes, let's try polka dots, let's try, you know, purple polka dots with yellow centers. You know, it goes on. There's there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different patterns that you could have. And if you just randomly had to pick one and then see how that worked, you know, and then pick another one and see how that worked. Well, in 10,000 years, you'd have a species of butterfly that's would suit its environment, you know, if they survived, but they find out it happens in, you know, in several years, like I say, a decade or less, you have a complete change of pattern because the moth got moved to a new environment. How did they do that so fast if it was just random? Well, these are questions in evolutionary biology that kind of, like I say, they're like the double slit experiment, the physicists, they just don't make sense. And that's because it's not all random. Those moths that are the wrong color have an intent to stay alive and that intent to stay alive modifies their biology. So now the probability that they're going to pick a color that's gonna work for them is not just random, it has an increased probability. 
You see, so random means every color has the same probability, but where you have an intent and where you have a, a you know a consciousness that's aware of a problem, you're going to then modify the probability of a solution that works. You're gonna you're gonna modify the probability so some of them are more probable than others, and the ones that are more probable are the ones that keep you from being eaten by the predators in your new neighborhood. So that's the you know, it's basically the same kind of question. And the moths can change, pass that on to their offspring. And very quickly, this process can happen um, because it's not entirely a random process. Yes, there are random components to it. And it doesn't happen in a you know one generation. But over a dozen generations, they can evolve um, into a whole new color scheme that fits perfectly with their new environment. And if, if it had to be random, that would be centuries where they could do that. If they could, if they could do it at all, because it's a hard thing to do. Maybe the one that works, say, wow, here's a good color. That really hides us well, and our predator, predator enemies can't get us. But then that one happens to, you know, get run over by a truck. You know, it, it, it dies for some other reason. So you not only have to have that chance, you have to have that, that chance happen enough times that it actually gets started and then can, can uh, you know work its way into a into a species and then eventually dominate the species? Well, if all of that's random, it takes a very very long time for that to happen. Uh, it, it's a slow process. Yes, you eventually get there, but it's thousands of years. Generally, doesn't take that long. In a single generation, you can modify your genetic structure to the point you pass that on to your children. Okay. The next question is from forum user Chesmis on forcing your will onto others. I've heard Tom speak about not forcing your will on others, especially if you find yourself lowering your entropy as you have little need to manipulate circumstances. I have also heard Tom say, uh, talk about having a strong will, for example, when defending yourself from a negative entity who has an intent to harm. Um, my question is, how do I know if I'm forcing my will on circumstances or if it is necessary to have a strong will to follow through an intent? Also, how do I know if my intent is for my own good or if it is coming from ego? I get that question a whole lot. People, uh, as they evolve and as they grow up, they are into these situations and they just can't tell. All right, I have this seem to have this intent and this intent is looks like it's going to be better for me to do that well is that because of ego or is that because it's a honest intent or you know what is my motivation and why am i doing these things um and then with the the other idea is when okay i, I understand that mbt is not a uh, pacifist philosophy that you do sometimes need to stand up and, you know, stand your ground or fight or, you know, become aggressive, that that is required sometimes, that you must protect yourself or others that need your protection. Otherwise, you're letting high entropy kind of run rampant without check if you don't. But now you have this problem of, well, if I can be aggressive, then when is my aggression a result of my ego? And it's because what I want. And when is it am I doing the right thing? And the only way you can you can answer those questions is by growing up enough to where the answer becomes obvious to you. You see, it's not an intellectual, it can't be an intellectual solution. As long as you try to make it an intellectual solution, like you're going to sit down and figure this out. You know, is this my ego or is this, uh, you know, coming from other? If you try to make that an intellectual solution, you'll just confuse yourself. And pretty soon you won't know what you think about what you're doing. And then you'll be afraid to act at all because you're not sure your intellect isn't sure that it's the right thing. What if I'm doing all this stuff and it's just my ego and I'm actually going backwards instead of forwards. And how do I know whether I'm going backwards or forwards? And pretty soon you, that gets into a downward spiral of overthinking to where people are paralyzed and can't do anything because they're afraid of doing it wrong. That's a, you know, that's a, a problem. You have to realize that as you grow up, this is the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps analogy. You know, as you grow up, your insight will get better and more valuable. And as it does, you will intuitively have a sense of where you should go, you know, and where you shouldn't. Should you stand up and object or should you just let that go by? 
it's not an intellectual thing that you're solving. It has to come out of your being level, a knowing and an understanding, and it only grows very slowly. You can't skip the steps and say, well, I'll figure this out out intellectually, and then I'll know exactly how I should act. Now now you're looking for a, a recipe or a prescription on what to do. There is no prescription for you and what to do because all of the situations you face are all unique and you are unique. So you have two unique things interacting. No prescription is going to work. You just have to to learn as you go and do the best you can with what you've got. Don't be afraid to go do and do the, you know do it the best you can. And if it turns out badly, if your feedback says, "Oops, that was a problem. All I did with that was create a lot of difficulty for a lot of people, including myself. Then you'll probably find the ego in it. Then you learn from that. Next time, you'll be a little smarter because you've, you've seen that ego trap now because you just stepped in it. So you're wiser to it, and you have a higher probability of avoiding it the next time, although you'll probably step in it five or six times before you actually do uh, get it to the point where you change your behavior. That's just kind of the way we are. But that's the way you have to grow. It has to be out of your own experience. So there is no way to intellectually make those decisions. But don't be paralyzed because you don't know. It's people who live in their intellect. They live from their intellect. Their whole reality is generated out of their intellect. They, they are the ones that get wound up tight and then end up being paralyzed. They can't do anything because their intellect can't give them a solution. Without a solution, they're afraid to move because it might be in the wrong direction. You see, that's not helpful. You need to just do your best. Try to do it for the right reasons. Watch the feedback. Do it again. Watch the feedback. And eventually, even if you're a slow learner, you'll get it. And if it's working for you and the feedback is good, then go that way. And if it isn't, then figure out what's wrong and, and try to change it. And that's the process of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So there is no easy answer to the question because you're a unique individual. All your circumstances are unique to you. You just have to do the best you can with what you've got at the time. But you can be aware of your motivations. Why am I doing this? What's the, what's the basic thing? And if you say, well, I really don't know, you know, it might be ego, might be anything. And you can say, well, what are my alternatives? Any alternatives seem better to me? And you might say, well, no, I think I ought to do this. Well then do it. Just go do it and watch for where the chips fall. Let the chips fall, but be aware of those chips. How are they falling? How are you affecting other people? What's your, you know, what's your net effect on the world? Is it lowering entropy or is it raising entropy? And you have to do that assessment in the long term because sometimes you have to raise entropy in the short term so that it'll lower in the long term. Oh, no, another one of these things that you don't know, you know, another thing to worry about. Don't worry about it. Just do it. Watch what you're doing and then learn from it. So we, we have to not get in the mindset that we shouldn't make a mistake we have to get in the mindset, we'll do the best we can, and if it's a mistake, we'll learn. So you do things with eyes open and awareness of how you're affecting others and how you affect yourself. And eventually, you will figure it all out and do just fine. But it's a slow process of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and there's no easy way to, to get around that. That's why it takes a long time. That's why we have to go through so many lifetimes to do it, because it's a slow process of trial and error and being aware enough to sort out the feedback and see what it's telling us and then try it again. Trial and error and sort out the feedback. And that's our whole life is like that. You just do what you have to do. Do it the way you think is best for the best motivation you can come up with. Don't do those things that you know are not good motivation and see how it all comes out. And that will, in six months or a year, lead you into a totally different place of being. And in a decade, you will be a totally different human being. So at least most people, that's, that's, it won't take that long. You just have to do it. But you can't, you can't uh, know what the right answer is. You have to experiment and figure out what the right answer is. It's not something you get in a book or somebody's going to tell you. It's got to come out of your own experience. Again, not your experience not your truth. Okay. 
the next question is from forum user Reality, and it's on twin souls. Uh, Tom, I've never heard you talk about the concept of twin souls or twin flames, so I thought I'd ask to see how it relates to MBT. I know of people who swear they know their twin soul and it's a palpable connection and very real to them. It consists of a strong physical connection, sometimes including psychic connection like no other. As an IOC can have multiple incarnations at once, could it be one avatar meeting another from the same IOC? How, how do you see that from an MBT perspective? Okay, now there's lots of possibilities here. Um, you know, there's many ways that that can go. Yes, it is possible that you and other people have uh, incarnated together, if you will. I mean, like within a group, so that you are um, uh, connected in some way. You know, you you have roles to play with each other. That's a possibility. It's a possibility that uh, one consciousness can be playing more than one avatar at a time. You know, a lot of us do that in our gaming. You know, we have an elf in this game and maybe we have a barbarian in the same game and we can play them both. Um, and it's possible that you and another person just happen to click in the way that you interpret the world It's all, uh, you know, you really kind of feel like you understand each other on a very deep level very quickly. That can just happen. And that can happen for probably a dozen different reasons. You know, it may be because that's really true, or it may be because that just seems to be true, or it may be because you want it to be true. Therefore, you see it that way because that's the way you want it to be. Or who knows? There's lots of ways that you can end up with this special relationship that seems different than any other, more profound and, and, and deeper, quicker than other people. So it may have a, a, um, its roots in plans, in similar, uh, you know, one consciousness and multiple avatars. It could have its roots in any number of things, but it's probably just as likely, if not more likely, to have its roots in the fact that Two people who were just ready, ready to make a, a certain kind of connection at that time, just bump into each other and the connection seems, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, it just fits together so well that that just works for them. And it doesn't have to have any of this, uh, you know, background connections going on with it at all. It can just happen that way. You know, look at the statistics. It's a statistical process. The person that you that you fall in love with, you know, your twin flame, this this person is probably going to be selected out of all the seven and a half billion people on the planet. It's going to be somebody that you meet, somebody in your neighborhood, somebody that you you know happen to be in the same chat with, or somebody that, that goes to your school or whatever. You know, somebody that you because of, they frequent the same place as you do. And out of that seven and a half billion, that's probably one thousandth of, you know, one percent or less, probably a millionth of one percent. And out of that very, very, very small population, subpopulation, you're going to pick your significant other because you have you have hard wiring by being a human animal to pick a significant other. And you will likely do that from the selection that's in front of you and you will pick the one that seems to work best. So a lot of it is just statistics what's the probability that when you happen to you know pick this one from the ones that are in your neighborhood that you that you happen to bump up against that one of those will be just a really really good match for your personality attitudes likes and dislikes and you'll have this resonance you both uh, maybe you're very sensitive maybe you're both empaths and uh, connect at that level maybe you're just really looking for a connection at that level so a lot of it's just statistics and probability out under the curve there's some you know probably three or four or five percent of the population that just happened to land next to somebody that they really connect with in a deep way and the rest of the population doesn't so it seems like it's a minor you know like it's a small percentage of the people who get this um this deep connection with another 
and it doesn't have to be an opposite sex. Now, you know, there are there are deep friendships that are made in the same way where two people just really resonate and they really connect. And they're not, uh, you know, male, female energized relationship. It's just a deep friendship builds. So that can that can uh, happen as well. So it's just mostly chance. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's because it's a pre-planned incarnation and you're supposed to connect for some reason that you think that you're good for each other's growth or whatever. And it can be that. But I say mostly it's probably not. So all those possibilities exist at once. And, and the, the way the ball bounces could pick any any one of those. Okay. The next question is from Joe and it's on awareness, the focus of intention and the avatar. Joe, go ahead. You've probably answered this question in various forms, and you you, you talked earlier about constraints, uh, but I'll, I'll ask this question. When one meditates and one gets distracted by thought and the mind wanders, what drives the drift in awareness? If we use signal to noise as a metaphor for the magnitude of our focus of intent and awareness, how much noise comes from the avatar's characteristics for the constraints versus the IUOC that drives the avatar? I guess, where's the origin of the noisy channel? Is that noise related to the entropy of the consciousness that plays the avatar? Is the avatar uh, that one gets to play or drive related to the quality of consciousness of the IUOC and the challenges that the IUOC needs to face in a particular incarnation? Yeah, okay. It's, you know, it's, it's both. You know, in, in your question about, uh, you know, is it the uh, avatar constraints that are driving it or is it the... Uh, the constraints of the uh, consciousness that are, that are uh, creating the extra noise. And it's both, but in, in different ways, it's the consciousness that's making the decisions. It's the consciousness that wants to meditate. It's the consciousness that's trying to let go of all the thoughts, but the consciousness has to work within the tools that it has to work with. And one of those tools is its avatar. So let's say it's avatar has a, um, I don't know, an uh, overactive uh, neurotransmitter supply. So instead of getting the right number of neurotransmitters in the brain, it produces double that number. Well, we might say that person has ADD, or we might say they're just nervous or uh, high strung or something else. But that person will probably have a harder time meditating just because that avatar doesn't support meditation as well as a different avatar. But now, so that's kind of the. Um, I don't know, maybe we call that like a, a zero order, uh, you know, perturbation of the system. That's kind of a fundamental constraint. But now the major constraints have to do with the consciousness. The reason that the consciousness uh, loses track and the thoughts start coming in is because the consciousness has an unruly mind. And usually that means the consciousness is working out of fear and ego. And that fear and ego is going to have some kind of an attachment. That fear and ego says, oh, uh, I need to do this. If I don't do this, such and such you know, is going to happen. I have this going on. Uh, what am I going to, what am I going to plan for dinner tonight? You know, and, and am I supposed to pick up the kids tonight? And you have all this stuff going on uh, that's about you and your life and controlling the things in your life and what you have to do and why you have to do it. And most of this is your ego trying to manipulate your life to be the way you, you think it needs to be. And those thoughts will just keep intruding. So that's then a property of the consciousness. That has nothing to do with the avatar. But the avatar may have that fundamental, you know, there's like a fundamental frequency there that's the real big kind of frequency. The avatar will bring that in, can make the whole process more or less efficient or likely. Um, Typically, it's not the avatar, though, that drives the problem. Typically, unless you have a, a dysfunctional avatar, like I say, too many neurotransmitters, or uh, maybe the avatar just hit its thumb with a hammer you know, a half hour before, and that thumb is just throbbing. Well, now that's the rule set, and you are going to have to deal with that. It's going to be a little hard to let go of that. So in cases like that, you kind of zero order uh, perturbation, if you will. The avatar matters, but mostly... It's the noise level in the consciousness that the consciousness can't let go of things. It keeps reaching out and grabbing things and grabbing thoughts. And often the idea of letting go is sometimes a little scary itself because if you let go of everything, it's a scary idea because what's going to happen? Who are you? 
if you let go of everything. Most of us, because we're dominated by ego, define our reality in terms of the things we do, in terms of our responsibilities and our actions and, and uh, our plans and you know, our manipulations. And that's who we are. We're the person who's doing this and this so that our children will do that and that so that our spouse will you know, do this other thing. So that, and we've got all this stuff going all the time. And it's that stuff that reaches out and connect, you know, you're connecting to. You keep connecting to all of that, that idea. So that's where most of the noise comes from. It's from, the conscious, it's from the consciousness itself that isn't just able to say, you know, just let go. And it's, it is scary for some people. Now, some people, they just never think about it. It doesn't scare them at all. But some, they have this idea that if I let go all of this stuff that defines me because they define themselves in, in terms of all this stuff that they're doing, if I let go of all of that, who am I? Well, I just kind of drift off in the void and not, you know, not come back. You know, who am I? Who am I to let go of that? Because their definition of themselves, how they see themselves, is in terms of their ego and their interactions with others. That's how they define themselves. And letting go of that can be like letting go of yourself. You know, it's like losing yourself. Will I come back? You know, what will all of these things? that define me. So it's difficult for some people and that will create noise. That's just an attachment. You're attached to these things happening and you're being responsible for them. And we do have to keep track of things. If you have to pick your children up after school and you're saying, well, I got uh, 20 minutes here. I can meditate. Well, you need to be done in your 20 minutes so that you can go pick your kids up. That is an important thing to do. That's a responsibility. So you set an alarm or every couple of minutes you peek at your wristwatch and you learn to go in and out of a meditation state very quickly in order to do that. Or you say, well, not a good time. I'll meditate, you know, after I pick up the kids and we'll do it later. So you do have things to deal with. And that's not means that you, that's a problem. You, you do have to be responsible. But you need to be able to just to kind of deal with that gracefully. If you're not dealing with it gracefully, then it becomes noise in your system. It's just like when I say let go of your outside environment when you meditate. That doesn't mean that you don't hear the traffic in the street or you don't hear somebody comes walking through your front door of your house. You still hear that. You're just not attached to it. You're not connected to it. You don't operate on it. It's just there. And you hear it and you don't start thinking, oh, that's my wife and she's just come in the house and she's going to do this and that and she's going to want me to do this other thing. Well, if, if it comes to that, it's time to stop meditating. You got responsibilities. You know, Get up and go help your wife put the groceries away. You need to, you need to do that. Um, but you know, if you can have a, you can be in a good meditation state, you can be in point consciousness and still be aware if your phone rings the doorbell or something else, but you could just let it go. Okay. It's just the phone. I'll see who it is later. You know, it's, I, I can just let that go. But if you immediately start saying, well, I wonder, uh, was that the school calling? Maybe one of my kids are sick or something. And you, your fear and other things get into it and your ego, and then you're done. Well, you might as well just let go of the meditation and go pay attention to business. Otherwise, it's going to bug you all through your meditation. You'll be frustrated at the end of it, and you know it won't have worked. It'll, it'll have been the opposite. So you just got to know when to hold them and when to fold them, right? And when to just let it go because the, the world is not cooperating with you at this time. So that's... I guess kind of the, the, the best answer. We don't have to let go of things like completely. Sometimes we do that and that's nice, but we can still be in this world. And you, you learn that when you learn, you learn resiliency by meditating in unusual conditions. It's difficult, but you can get it. You can meditate while you walk around. Now, not while you're playing hopscotch or, you know, dancing or something be a bad choice. But if you're just walking in a park, you can do a meditation and still see where your feet are. So you're not going to step in a hole or run into anybody. You can still pay attention enough. You can learn to do those kinds of things. And that, that'll develop some resiliency in your meditation where you can meditate in a noisy place. You can meditate, uh, you know, in, in a bright place where people are talking and having conversations. You just have to not attach to any of them. You just have to let them be part of the background and that's okay. And uh, then you find when you're in a real quiet place is when it just all drifts away and you don't have any sense of your environment at all. 
But if somebody were to ring your doorbell or your house was to catch on fire, you know, it's not like you'd be sitting there, uh, you know, burning, you know, burning up with the fire because you're meditating and you, you've lost touch with the reality. That's not the that's not really where we're going. We just want to disconnect from it. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Okay, so now we have questions from Shaw and uh, from Polly. Maybe Polly will start with one question from you, and Shaw, you can already prepare yourself for the next question. Hi, Tom. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine, Polly. Perfect. Thank you. So uh, maybe to previous topics, uh, I remember uh, you mentioned a game. Um, there is a new type of games uh, coming out. They are procedurally uh, generated. So mm -hmm. that's basically... Uh, one of the games um, that's, I, I think, popular right now is uh, No Man's Land, if somebody wants to look it up. And uh, regarding the gene change, uh, I think the field of uh, science that is taking care of that, uh, uh, scientific research, is epigenetics. And there are also very nice uh, scientific studies done also by some Harvard uh, study, uh, guys who researched effects of meditation on people. Uh, and it was effects of long-term and short-term meditators uh, where gene expression was changed within, I think, 90 days of meditation, twice a day, 15 minutes. So that's, I think, quite interesting. All right, so to my question, um, have you, Tom, ever requested to experience a concept like, for example, infinity, acceptance, or love? Um, I remember, for example, that... Uh, um, got the name <laughs> William Bullman he uh, usually recommends to uh, ask the LCS uh, to connect uh, or to go to the higher self so have you ever tried something like that and are there some concepts you would generally recommend uh, for people to experience to help uh, them grow sure it's a it's a thing that um almost everybody will eventually experience and it's a good thing for everyone to experience. And that is where you just experience the larger consciousness system. You just kind of open yourself up and join with the larger consciousness system. And it's a, it's a good experience. And many of your, um, I don't know that it would be most of them, but at least quite a few of your near death experiences, that's what they do. You know, they, they uh, meet the being of white light. And when they do, they kind of, you know, get, they kind of merge with it and they feel this love and it's total love and acceptance. They also have an awareness of everything in existence and they feel a part of everything in existence. Not only that it's out there, not just like they're watching it a movie, but they're also it. They're a part of it. They're connected to everything. Um, everything is total love and acceptance and nice and bright and white and, you know, it's just one of these big uh, uh, peak experiences that changes your life, right? And you get that in, in the near-death experiences, but it's a, you get that among a lot of meditators as well, where they have that experience. And I think it's a very good experience because that's your introduction to the larger consciousness system. That's the system we're in. That's the system we're growing up to be. And the system won't mind giving you that experience it's if it's something that you are ready for and something you can use. So it's just a matter of, of becoming one really with that larger system. So you get to see and feel and be as that system sees and feels and bees. And it's a good thing to do because then you come away from that saying, oh, okay, I've been there. I know what the system's like. I know where I'm going. So yes, it is a good thing to do. It's not too hard a thing to do. Eventually, it's, well, when it first happens, if you are not real grown up yourself and that happens, it's overwhelming. It's kind of an overwhelming thing. And people get overwhelmed by it. Uh, if you're a little more developed than that, it's an awesome thing. And people walk out of it with a big grin on their face. If you're a little more developed than that, then it's a, ah. This is nice and it feels good. And if you're a little more developed than that, then it's just like going home. It's just like it's, it's part of your reality and it's part of just the way you live that that experience is, is there. 
So it's, it kind of depends where you are as to how you're going to, how you're going to react to that. Um, yeah, so at the, at the uh, beginning levels, sometimes people just get overwhelmed to where they can't, they can't really process it. They come back with bits and pieces, but it's very difficult to process that. And at the other end, it's easy to process. It's easy enough that uh, it's not even so much a, a thing you do for peak experience as it is just a part of your life. You know you live in that space. Partly you're in that space all the time yourself. So it's, yeah, good thing to do. It's uh, not necessarily a goal to seek, but if you're ready, it'll probably happen to you and open to it. The reason I say it's not necessarily a good goal to seek, because if you're not ready, it's probably going to be overwhelming to you, you see, and then that's not necessarily so good. Because some people then will interpret that overwhelming as this being of light sucked me in and took away my whole, you know, uh, you know, robbed me of my soul and and they're panicked in it. They're frightened of it. It's a scary experience because they've been consumed by something and their own sense of I disappeared. And that's a scary thing for them because they want to be in control and to have their, to have their capital I melt is a, you know, a frightening experience. So in that case, you're not ready for it and you really don't want to have it, you say, but most people don't get it at that level because they're really not ready. Some do, and mostly people get it when they're ready for it. Does that answer your question about that? Yes, definitely. Thank you very much, Tom. Maybe to uh, to add to what you recommended that it may not be uh, the best thing for somebody who may be uh, easily overwhelmed. I came to that idea um, based on a book I read uh, from uh, uh, Robert Wagoner. Um, and there he mentioned uh, also the tricky part of specifying one's intent. And he told uh, in his book that it's uh, the full immersion experience is like uh, wishing for uh, being the concept. But uh, it is also, according to him, better to start with, I want to feel what it is like to be love. Uh, basically, feeling it is less intensive. And I myself have tried it um, just a few days ago, and I messed up my intent. I wanted to feel what it is love. And basically, my intent uh, gave me what it is uh, to feel the concept of love uh, within my no own normal experience. So basically, I, I received some sort of answer, but not really what I intended originally. But still, it was a very interesting uh, thing. So, Yeah, well, as you, as you learn, you generally get what you need. And as you learn those lessons that you got, you'll be more likely to get the other lessons that you wanted. So it's just part of a process of growing. You know, don't feel like, oh, I got the wrong thing or they didn't understand me or I didn't do it right. You probably they did do it right and you probably did do it right. And you're probably just a sequence of steps. Just keep on going with it. And uh, it is a it can be overwhelming, but you get there in steps. Besides that, if the system knows that that's something you really want to do, well, you've just given the system a carrot. Now, they'll just hold that carrot just a little bit in front of your nose to get you to take the next step. And after you take that step, that carrot will move just a little further on, you see. So you never quite know what's what's going on because the system will use carrots and sticks. And um, so you just don't worry about the details. You just do what you do and do it well and make your intent known. I really would like to, you know, to be that or to, to meld with that or something and leave that there. But if something else happens, well, you do that too. And just, it'll come in time when it's, when it's ready. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah. Cause sometimes when the donkey just stops trying to get that carrot, you just take the carrot and feed it to the donkey cause it's not working anymore. So it's hard to say. <laughs> so just, just follow your intuition and do what you do. Okay. Sean, are you ready to ask one of your questions? Then unmute yourself and go ahead. Okay, thanks. Um, can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Um, I wanted to ask about, I know you talk about how exploring NPMR isn't necessary to conscious growth, um, but if we choose to explore NPMR, um, basically how do we explore it in a way that can help us? Um, it just seems like it's um, so it seems impossible to know where to go. Don't really know what exists there to begin with. 
So I wanted to know, you know, do you just make a conscious intent to interact uh, with a being who can help you? Um, or do you, in, you know, intend to go to a place who will help you? Or, you know, basically, how do you explore it? Uh, you know, any advice you can offer uh, would be helpful. Sure. Okay. The, exploring can be a very good and growing thing, uh, particularly for people who are left brain. If what you need is to is to do experiments and and see you know and develop evidence so that you have a sense of reality of what's going on, and more left brain people have a need for that. Otherwise, they can't take the next step. If they can't get there rationally, they can't get there at all. You know, they have to have that logical process. So in that case, uh, you know, doing this exploration is a valuable tool for them. Right brain people, not so much. They don't need to actually experience that in order to get it, in order to understand it. So it kind of depends on you as to how valuable it is. Now, how do you end up places? How do you get someplace when you don't know what to ask for? How can I intend to go to such and such a place if I don't know such and such a place exists? Okay, that's, uh, it's the same thing that any explorer uh, has to deal with. When the explorers first, uh, you know, from Europe, first landed uh, on the shores of North America, they had no maps. They had no idea what was over the next hill. They didn't know whether it'd be something that would eat them over the next hill or something that would give them, you know, gold over the next hill. Had no idea. So the only way to find out is to go over the next hill and see what happens. Or if you, uh, if you're blind, say, and you have to explore a new place, you just step off in a direction and see what's there. Come back and step off maybe in in the same direction again and see if the same thing's still there come back and so on, you just progressively build up your map from experience. But in this, in this uh, exploring the larger conscious system, sometimes it's hard just to stop, step off in a direction because you don't even know how to step off. So I would suggest doing uh, uh, something that, that allows the larger consciousness system to take hold of the rudder of yours for a while and do what is good for you. And that is have an intent that says, I would like to have an experience from which I can learn something valuable for my growth, for my understanding of this, this reality. I'd like to understand this reality better. I'd like to get a sense of the reality of it. Give me an experience that will help me do that and then be open. And often you will have that answered. You will get an experience that will help you Learn something. But now you, you have to not have an expectation of what that experience is going to be. If you have an expectation, oh, I know, I'm going to go to the, you know, Bob and Rose Park and sit in the park bench and talk to, you know, Bob and his friends. If you've got that kind of an expectation, nothing probably will happen. You just have to say whatever and then let your mind go where it goes. Just flow with it and that will be your experience then you can build on that experience next time. The nice thing about that is if let's say you go to a place, let's say you go to some other reality frame and you meet some interesting being there and you have a good, interesting conversation, now you can always go back. You know, and all you have to do, to, you have the address now. I want to go to that place, you know, where I met this person. I want to go and reconnect with that person in that place. And now that's an address and your intent can take you there. But before you ever went there, you had no address, so you couldn't go there. It's like uh, on Google. If you, go, if you pull down Google, sometimes where you type in what it is you want to search on, Google will come up and say, you know, I feel lucky. And that means you just hit the button and Google will deliver you some information that uh, it thinks you might be interested in. So you just hit the button and, and it goes out. Now, probably not entirely randomly because it kind of knows your history probably. Now, I don't know how Google works, but we can assume that they know a little bit about your history and using Google. But even if they don't, it goes out and grabs something and, you know, I'm feeling lucky. There it is. So it's sort of like that. You just go and ask the system to give you experience that will meet your needs. And here's my needs. And here's why I have those needs. This is my point, And this is where I'm going from. And if what your needs are something like, wow, I'd really like to just end up in some world and see some people and creatures, and that would be really cool, probably nothing going to happen because that's the wrong reason. 
this is not an amusement park. You know, you're not at Six Flags, and this is not about doing something really cool that's fun and exciting. This is about growing up. So if your reason has to do with your own growth and kind of where your sticking points are and what would help you get unstuck and why, and if you bring that up and deliver that with your request, and it's good reason, then there's a high probability that you'll go there. Once you go there, you have the address and can always go back. So that's how you explore the larger consciousness system. There's this one, one adventure at a time, one step at a time, and always keeping track of where you've been. If you don't pay attention, then maybe you won't have an address to go back. You'll kind of it'll get foggy in your mind and you will kind of lose it. So after you've been to a place, go back to it four or five times afterwards, build up that, that address and that ability. So it's a matter of, that's why I said like a blind person, he doesn't just go off and walk in some random direction. He takes a step out, sees what's there, then takes a step back where he was, then makes sure that he kind of gets that orientation, goes out there again, finds the same thing. Now, next time he may go a step beyond that and then come back two steps. What he's doing is building a map and a, and a territory and a knowledge of how to get there and how to get back. And you need to do the same things. You're not in an amusement park, so you're 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 working. Stay serious and stay focused on your growth, and it'll all fall in place by itself. You won't really have to control anything with your intellect, because if you want to control it with your intellect, then you don't know how, because you've never been anywhere. So how do you have an intent to go someplace when you don't have any addresses in your address book? That's a problem. Uh, the other thing you can do is as you meet people and you can meet people just by saying, I would like to talk to somebody out there and here are my requirements of who I'd like to talk to. Because if you leave it open-ended, you're liable to get anything. Some, some things might just want to play with you. They may say, well, look at this, some human out trying to talk to somebody. Hey, should we go talk to him? Yeah, let's go talk to him. This should be fun. You know, you may get that kind of an attitude. Uh, so you want to be careful what's your intent allows if it's totally a wide open intent i want to talk to someone you will have a probability of kind of getting a wide open you know selection of stuff back and it may not be what you want so be focused on what you want what really do you want and why do you want it and that'll be probably your hardest job is to find that focus and then go just put that intent out there be open to it no expectations if you have an expectation of of what you want it to be it probably won't work for you. You have to take it as it as it comes and then work with it. Work with whatever you get. So that would be my advice how to how to proceed.